This is Live from the Table, a Comedy Cellar affiliated podcast. <laughs> Coming at you on Sirius XM 99, Raw Dog, and on the Laugh Button Podcast Network, Dan Natterman here, along with Noam Dorman, the owner, proprietor, if you will, of the Comedy Cellar. And uh, Perel Ashenbrand is with us. She is our producer. We also have behind the scenes, unsung hero, though I sing her praises often enough. The Duchess of Decibels. The what else do I say about her? The, the Frau Fraulein of Faders. The wizard Fraulein of Faders. OK, <laughs> uh, Nicole Lyons from the great city of Binghamton, New York, now living here in New York City. Thank you, uh, Nicole, for doing your part. Um, I guess we have a guest coming up in a little bit, but um, when's he coming? Five forty-five. Okay. So we have this new system, but I just I just want to say Nicole is really because I go like this, and then watch watch. It's like an answer. Da, da, da. See that? It's like a it's a quite a delay. Sure, that sounds that. great. Anyway, I'm just saying it's like a, it's 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 weird. It doesn't matter. Don't look at the screen. Mm. It looks good. It's still a huge improvement. Um. If anybody it's called latency, we have a latency issue. Go ahead. Go does ahead. anybody have any particular things to address? I do have something uh, that that I, I find of interest. If, if nobody else has is it, I, I well, go ahead. Is it about comedy or about the news or your yeah. personal life? Uh, it's about something I saw on Netflix that I found pretty fascinating. Okay, go the, ahead. The, the Thai cave rescue. That's what they call it. They really put no effort into name. It's called Thai cave rescue. That's the name of the of the limited series. Thai like Thailand. Yeah, Thai Cave Red. They put no effort at all into the title of this series, but it's about, you recall, believe it or not, it was four years ago. It's hard to believe. Remember those kids that were stuck in the cave in Thailand? No. What do you mean you don't? I don't remember that. You I really not I, remember that? No, I really don't. It was a big news story. It was like everybody was, Nicole, did you, you recall that? Yes. Everybody was like riveted to the TV set. How are they going to get these kids out of that cave? I remember some, some guys uh, underground in a tunnel. Some workers. No. In okay. a- well, that happens every now and again. There's like mine workers that get stuck. But that these were kids that one. went ca- cave exploring and then the okay. water started coming in. They, and they were in there for 17 days. And the first eight days, they were there by themselves. Literally, they didn't even know if anybody was looking for them. How old were these kids? I think they were like 13, 14. And then their coach was like probably 20-ish or so. I don't, I'm just judging by. Oh, with the coach. Yeah, that sounds familiar. Yeah. And, and uh, so they had like, they were co- all over the world. People were coming in like they needed specialized um, cave guy. Or Elon Musk was going to help save yeah, Well, Elon Musk, as, as he always does, came up with some harebrained scheme to Co- try to stay. Back the, to me, yeah. yeah. But Musk, I mean, he makes a good car and I guess he does some other things well, but he's also complete, you know, P.T. Barnum type. Yeah. And most of what he comes up with seems to be insane, but um, but they didn't use his advice. But no, they they ultimately um, well, I didn't know this. Um, I guess it's not really a spoiler alert because it was in the news. They drugged these kids in order to bring them out of the cave. Why? Because they couldn't teach these kids how to cave dive. You know, that these people had 10, 20 years experience in cave dive, 30 years even. You couldn't t- teach these kids how to cave dive. But if you try, so you basically they drugged them, knocked them out with ketamine and just dragged them through the cave like they were like they were equipment. Because the, the kids would have freaked out if they weren't unconscious. They, Is this through water or something? What do you mean? Through water. They, the cave was flooded with water. And so they put masks on the kids and they had an oxygen tank and they knocked them out with ketamine and just they had the professional divers 
bragging as if these kids were just equipment. That's fantastic. It's amazing. It's like in craziest scheme. And, you know, and, 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 and they didn't think it was, they didn't think they were going to save. They, they thought they'd lose some of these kids, but they all made it out. 17 kids or 17 uh, days. Sorry. There's 17 days. The first eight days they were in the cave. With, had, they didn't even know anybody was drinking. No, no food until after eight days. They were found by a di- a diver who went in there. Some like I think from England. They had to find people from all over the world that were good enough to to cave dive, and they found these kids. And then they brought them food. They brought other cave divers came in with food and stuff. But they had no food for eight days. The, the miners were from Chile, right? Chile. Uh, there were there was a Chilean miner thing, yeah. But that was I think like ten twenty years. I mean, that was a long time. Anyway, I guess you don't need to see it anymore because I just talked about it. But I just I'm Thai having, cave divers on Netflix. I'm having my recommended. I'm having such a hard time understanding how these kids got into this cave. They walked into the cave and then it started. Right, you know, in Thailand, these parts of the world, they got these monsoon rain. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the and the wa- and the rain floods the ground, and then the water kind of rises up from the ground and floods the cave. But where? How did they not drown for eight days? Because the water didn't go all the way in. They had to run. They had to go deeper and deeper into the cave because the water was coming. I mean, can you imagine the horror? Of these, and these probably are, elevation. Probably the the, the yeah. The I guess the up. the cave went up or whatever, and and so the whole cave was not flooded, but the part that they were in was not flooded. But they were worried that it might be, so they had to get these kids out. They couldn't just like wait for the water to recede because the, I mean it's, it's just insane. It is pretty amazing. Can you imagine if your kid was in there? You 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 never. We able to function. I think about these parents sometimes. Their kid gets kidnapped or something, or disappears, and they never find them again. Yeah, I'm like, I just don't know how they go on. But how how do they live their lives? Well, remember the story about Lauren Spearer in Indiana, in Bloomington, Indiana. That like 20 year old girl. I think was she was from was Westchester, been- actually. That's a different one. No, there was one where like recently where the the, the fiance killed her. Yeah. And then they were trying to find the fiance and he ended up dead. He killed himself, I guess. Well, he killed her, too. But no, but this girl was like, I, I really do think they were from Westchester. I don't know. It's possible. The X-Men are from Westchester. The who? X-Men. Oh, my God. And this girl went, I mean, she could, you know, be any of our, she could have been any of our kids. And she. Not me. I don't have kids. Well, not you. But here, I don't know how this was like really a huge huge story and well, they st- I, I, i'm not going to read it now well I, I, okay but i thought maybe it would sp- the miners are from chile 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 yeah that's a chile <laughs> chile chile yeah all right well you should that- read up on this because it's um it's unbelievable they still haven't found who killed her well a lot of people have been killed and they haven't found who killed them okay. i also on a related note i also watched the the Ted Bundy movie, which is Zac Efron, who looks a lot like Ted Bundy. Really? How was it? I enjoyed it. Will you watch the Jeffrey Dahmer one and report back? Please? Uh, I'm not that interested in Jeffrey Dahmer. Really? I mean, for some reason, he doesn't. Interest. First of all, it's a series. A series is a big investment. Now, I, inv- I invest even with the Thai cave thing. Yeah. I fast forward it here and there. <laughs> but the the. um Dahmer just doesn't interest, right? He's a guy that ate the dudes, right? He was like a cannibal. It doesn't interest me well, for some reason. Had sex we all them. have our interests, and that's not an interest Okay, so talk to us about Ted Bundy. I happen to know a lot about this stuff, so I'm very interested. Well, number one, Zach Efron looks a lot like Ted Bundy. Mm-hmm. And number two, never trust men, I guess, is the right? lesson. That, that's, that is correct. Straight, especially straight 
white men in particular. Well, but you don't necessarily know they're straight. Bundy, he put on like a cast, a fake cast, and he had women. He, t- he said, oh, could you help me? And he was a decent looking guy. He's a good one. So, yeah, quote, and, unquote. And, okay. and he had this cast on. He would tell women, can you help me load my something in, on, into my car or whatever? And they would come, oh, sure. And then he would club them. It's so lucky for you that straight white men happen to be the worst people. <laughs> like, what if it was actually gay black men were the worst people? And then you had to just hold your tongue all the time. And you would never say, never trust men, especially gay black men. You just never be able to say that. I think gay black just, men. Like, it really worked out conveniently for you that the worst people actually be the one people but, but, who, who you can say these things uh, about. Right, Perry? Well, well, but she's, ha- she's half right. I, w- I wouldn't say the worst people are gay or straight white men, but she's half right. The worst people are men. The ser- serial, well, first like, of all, serial killers by and large are well, straight, white, I, I, straight white men. And uh, I'm not sure about the white part or the straight part necessarily. No, I'm telling you, I've read a lot about well, that. Well, we know what your reading comprehension skills are. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Really? Really? Do we? What it, are it, my... it does seem like, you know. It may be, by the way. It, I, it does seem like uh, these things are mostly straight white men, but. um. You know, white people are, I mean, uh, for instance, African-Americans are, are 14% of the population. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you wouldn't, you would, if, if everything just broke down according to race, it, it, you know, it'd still be, you know. Okay, let's not turn this a small into... number, but, but uh, it, does, it does feel that way. Like it's mostly white people do this stuff. And you know what? There's something cold about um, certain white cultural things, certain white families, certain white culture. Which wouldn't shock me if that had a relationship to um, this kind of stuff a lot. Like in my experience, like with, with you know, people are going to complain if I say this, but I'm speaking honestly, heartfelt that black culture, Hispanic culture just seems to be warmer on average. Just yeah, I warmer. Think I think that's true. And uh, you, you'd somehow think that warmness would uh, reduce the number of like weird serial killer types like well, uh, weird people yeah right? a lot of these people have had really fucked up childhood and you can tell what i mean there's the psychopathic triad you well, can tell from we'll have to do research for next time because i don't think we know statistically if we can say that st- proportionally there's more white get get us a, might, get us a, well. okay. a serial killer guest oh my god i would and, love that and uh and as far as straight is concerned i don't know about that either but well, we can all agree that men are dangerous and um, also, Ted and Bundy was a lawyer, him. right? Ted Bundy. Ted Bundy was a law student. Law yeah, I don't know if he finished or not. Um, he and, also volunteered in a rape crisis hotline you know, center. I'm sure he was a very, in many ways, um, fun guy to hang out with. He was a lot. A lot of well, a lot of the serial killers' profiles is that they're um, very charming. That's how they lure their victims. Hitler was the life of the party, was he? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah. He wore the lampshade. <laughs> no, no, he wasn't. Is that a reference to the? Uh... <laughs> no, it wasn't a reference. Okay. <laughs> uh, but that's as far as my net, my Netflix viewing. That's that's my Netflix uh, weekly summary. I kind of like this as a new segment. Now, before before Benjamin Wittes is on, uh, what do you think about this um, explosion of the the uh, Nord? Uno and dos uh, pipelines in Ukraine. Did you see that story? Oh, I don't. I don't know. Oh, okay, well, that, well, let's, we'll see what's going on with that. Do you know about that, Perriel? Is that the, the Ukrainians blew them up? No, they, they, the, the story is, and I have trouble understanding it. The story is, as of today, that the Russians blew up their own pipeline. Um, Why? I, 
Of course, Tucker Carlson says America blew up the pipeline, which is, I think, ridiculous. Also, well, I don't know. I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's ridiculous that the Russians blew it up. It just seems really weird to me that the Russians would blow up their own pipeline. Uh, I thought Dan might have some thoughts on that, but he didn't. He, no, I don't have any thoughts. About, but I wasn't. No, but I did hear about. Didn't NASA try to divert an asteroid? I think they successfully did. And did they? Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah. We're all over the place. That yes, that is true. And my reading comprehension is fucking high. My math comprehension might not be that high. What was your verbal SAT? And before you do it, I'll take fifteen percent off, and I'll and I'll. I'll (laughs) (laughs) It was near perfect. No, it was not. Okay, I'll. You know what? I probably have it, and I'll. My math was abysmal. Your verbal SAT was not near perfect. Okay, I'm gonna. uh, I'm gonna tell you why. Because the verbal SAT is not about words; it's about analogies. It's, it's a logic it's, uh, test. Uh, there's three. No. I don't know if it's changed, but there was the reading comprehension part was one part. That's right. And then the analogy part, and then I think straight up vocabulary. Matt. Matt. Oh, 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I don't. No, know. I had very, very high in the verbal and very, very low in the math. Why do they? Why do they test vocabulary if the SAT is about intelligence? Isn't vocabulary completely learned knowledge? Well, I, I two things. First, I know it kills you. Do you have your SAT scores? Probably somewhere. Okay. Do you, could we could we do a show about like? Can I make a yeah. guess? Dan make a guess, and you actually bring yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, and then I'll answer about the. But I have test. to find it first. Go ahead. Yeah. Well, that was my question. Why would they test vocabulary? No, first, first predict her score. Oh no! Uh, don't predict it now. Let me find it first. Let no, me, no. Me, I want you to commit to bringing it in, no matter I'm what it is. Committed to bringing it in. I don't in. know if, if, if okay. is it. I remember the eight hundred system. Yeah, that's what it was. It was yeah, out of sixteen okay. hundred. Right, well, anyway, okay, so now, so that's a good question. I think that um, first of all, the SAT is not supposed to be an intelligence test. It's supposed to be a test which predicts your ability to do well in college. Uh, the LSAT is more supposed to be like an intelligence test. So, uh, uh. For, for instance, math also. I mean, unless you unless you learn the math, you don't know how to do it, right? right. So once learned, math then becomes about intelligence. Yeah. So, Are you good at math? Yeah. So the SAT okay. um, uh, is obviously, if you don't have a decent vocabulary, you can't be expected necessarily to understand college-level texts and blah, blah, blah. So that would be that. But, but I would go further and say that um, intelligent people pick up vocabulary. I, I'm pretty sure it's, it's Carly's. It's not just learned because I see it in, uh, I see my own three children uh, exposed to the same number of words. And there's a clear difference in um, how they pick, how pick, pick it up. So my, my son, Manny, nine-year-old says to me yesterday or on, on uh, what day was uh, Rosh Hashanah? Sunday. On Sunday, night. he says, no, no, no. You're turning the house into chaos and disarray. <laughs> I said, did you say chaos and disarray? He said, yeah, chaos and disarray. And I'm like, well, that's that's like a, no nine-year-old says chaos and disarray. I think right? chaos might be in a, a nine-year-old might know chaos. Maybe. But, but disarray is probably unusual for a nine-year-old. But a nine-year-old might know chaos, but to use it in his working vocabulary, is like, this is chaos and disarray. It just, it just flowed out of him. Now, I don't think I would have said that at nine years old. I know my daughter Mila wouldn't have said that at nine years old. Um, my other one is younger than nine. I don't think he will either. So, uh, so did he learn that? I mean, as he did learn it, but it's also, I think a sign of obviously a sign of his verbal intelligence. Yeah. And then it's not a coincidence. He's been speaking since he was a year and a half. He just always been good at speaking. So, you know, I, I think it's difficult to, to, 
disentangle. Dis- disentangle, disentwine. Although, yeah. although I do remember we did have like we did learn vocabulary in high school. They would they gave us lists. Yeah, but some kids do bad on. Them. Yeah, some right? kids maybe can't memorize it. And then well, memorization isn't in education oh, necessarily. Of I heard Benjamin Wittes. All right, that's the that's the uh, signal from my. That's my cue to do what I do best, which but is minimum, introduce say people. hello first. Bingo. Benjamin Wittes is with us. With well, we are, Benjamin Wittes well, we have to be able to see him the call. Oh, look at that. She, there he is. Hello. Hello. Wittes is with us. Uh, can I? <laughs> I I'm, never heard that before. Yeah, well, he probably has not. <laughs> he probably has. Uh, Benjamin Wittes, by the way, is an American legal journalist and senior fellow in government governance studies at the Brookings Institution, where he's the research director in public law and co-director of the Harvard Law Brookings Project on Law and Security. Thank you for coming, Benjamin Wittes. And I apologize again for that uh, that introduction that you've probably heard many times before. It's good Except to be here. Benjamin Wittes is Wittes, that is. Look at that. And that's an awesome, is that a hammock you're sitting in? I am sitting in a hammock. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, I, had, I, had a, I had a hammock similar to that when I was in, in school, but yours is, yours is nicer. Way nicer. I decided at the beginning of the pandemic, if I was going to spend uh, a year or two in this room, I was going to do it in a hammock. It's <laughs> amazing. By the way, before we get into the law stuff, and you may not have any uh, uh, desire to comment on this, but I'm just curious because on my mind, do, do you have any thoughts on whether or not and why Russia blew up the, the Nord Stream uh, pipeline? It's such an interesting story to me. Have you been following that at all? I do. And I I actually follow uh, matters related to the Ukraine war very carefully. Um, uh, So first of all, I do think it was very likely a Russian operation. Uh, And the answer to the question of why, first of all, there aren't that many options available to the Russians to escalate this uh, that aren't nuclear, right? And uh, they don't have a lot more weaponry to throw at the problem. They're trying to throw bodies at the problem, but they're trying to emphasize to the Western Europeans, particularly to the Germans, that uh, their energy security is dependent on Russia. And one way to do that is to have a disruption in the uh, natural gas supply. Uh, and so you do this in a fashion that is deniable, that you can blame on the West, maybe the United States, uh, that your fingerprints aren't directly on, but that everybody knows that you did. Wow. So, so let me ask you, first of all, just to be clear. So Tucker Carlson was out there saying that America did this. I think that's just absolutely ridiculous. So I don't ridiculous. Want you, yeah, just just absurd. So I don't want you to think that any of these questions are have. I don't have that in the back of my mind. I don't. I understand very well why there's it would be just unthinkable for America to do such a thing. I'm trying to understand why Russia would do it. Obviously, and, and this is just what I'm wondering about. So obviously the pipelines were already off. And Yes, but they were full of gas. Right. And, and there was protests in Germany and somewhere else in Europe about high energy prices. So this having them off but intact was putting pressure on European governments uh, and who knows what the winter would bring in terms of that pressure even escalating, and, and maybe the governments would respond to the pressure from their citizens. So destroying them, you know, is it seems like a little counterproductive, number one. Number two, it's, it's a weird thing to have anything happen in a war where 
the one side does what the other side could only hope for. I mean, if the if the Ukrainians could have pushed a button and blown up the pipelines, they would have loved to have pushed that button, right? Because that that to them, now Europe is not going to be vulnerable to this pressure anymore. And the Russians did it for them. Like both sides want the same thing. It's just a strange dynamic. So first of all, there are other routes for Russian nat- natural gas to get to Western Europe, including, by the way, overland pipelines through Ukraine. Um, and so this does not, and remember, Nord Stream 2 had never been turned on at all. Uh, it was kind of a, it was a project that was finished, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't operating. And so really this is destroying one pipeline or damaging. It's nothing that can't be fixed, but it's damaging one pipeline that the Germans have said they won't authorize to turn on now. Uh, and the other one, which was a major pipeline operation, which was turned off anyway. So look, I mean, I think it's a, it's a, it's a look how much we can make you hurt, uh, gesture from the Russians. And it's a sign of how little, uh, how little leverage they really have with Western Europe. They, um, you know, they don't, they don't have a lot more cards to play. And so, you know, uh, destroying one of, the means by which they export gas uh, because it allows them to uh, damage the German ability to receive gas is uh, is one of, is a is a card they have to play in a bad hand. More blowing it up more so than just turning it off. But, but let me ask you one more question: Why is it that nobody suspects that you that Ukraine did this? So first of all. Uh, uh, this is a naval operation. Uh, it was probably a mine placed there by, you know, uh, a ship. Ukraine is not a significant naval power. Uh, and secondly, a Ukrainian attack on German infrastructure would be just devastating to the coalition that the Ukrainians uh, and the United States uh, have built with the Western Europeans. And, you know, it would just destroy everything. And so for, for the for the Ukrainians to do something like this would be insane, it's even German though I agree with you that they benefit from it. It's German infrastructure? I didn't even realize that. Nord Stream 2, Nord Stream is a German. It's actually owned by a Swiss company, I believe. But a it's, Swiss subsidiary of Gazprom, right? Which is owned by the Russian. Right, but it, but, but, it, but it runs a... But it runs gas to Germany, right? And so you, you'd be, you, you, this would be Ukraine attacking Germany and Western Europe's ability to get gas. That yeah. would be crazy. So I, I did some reading about it. So in the Telegram, there was an article that said that it could have been dropped by a Russian oligarch's yacht, which I thought was ridiculous, the bomb. But it, it implied to me that this could have been a lower tech operation than we thought and then i read somewhere else that the, the the uk had actually sold six underwater uh drones to ukraine at one time recently so i be, i just began to piece together in a very like uh naive way of a guy who doesn't know anything about what he's looking at that like is this kind of seems like this could have been done in a low tech way uh using stuff no, that- this is two simultaneous explosions yeah. Uh, both quite precise. They destroy uh, underwater infrastructure in water that's a couple hundred feet deep. Uh, they um, 
they go off essentially simultaneously uh just just outside of danish territorial waters so it's not an attack on danish sovereign territory uh and by the way um uh uh these are um they both go off without a hitch uh in a fashion that causes the release of a lot of gas it's a precision operation it it really is a if they did it and i i don't have any reason not to uh take your word for everything you're saying uh it really seems like an act of desperation right i mean it, it's really something to, to imagine they would do that look the russian army uh in either its current form or its red army form uh has not had a defeat of this magnitude since the early days of world war ii right if you like since the german army was rolling over uh uh actually this same area um in uh 1941 um and into 42 uh this is a a defeat of historic proportions for the russians they are um we never inflicted anything like this on them um and they are um uh desperately trying to scrounge up people to throw in the way of uh ukrainian uh artillery anywhere they can get them it's a it's a it's a humiliating situation and uh they don't have a lot of cards to play in response and the one that they actually do have which is a which is you know to use a technical term, the nuclear option mm-hmm. uh, is is uh, regime ending from from their point of view, and they know that. So their their options are very limited. What an inspiring story! It's like one of these stories from history that they make movies out of. That you know, and you wonder, do these things really happen? And here it is happening, unfolding before our very eyes. And I mean, it's just amazing. So what's going to happen? <laughs> No, really. I have no idea. Oh, you have. <laughs> you certainly have more. Um, if you had, if you had to guess. <laughs> well, why isn't somebody um, assassinating Putin at this point? Because yeah. they can't so, get close to him. So, so, so let's take three discrete elements of the the what's going to happen question. Okay. Uh, start on the ground in in Ukraine. Uh, the area to watch um, is the south. Uh, the area around Kherson city, um, uh, where the Ukrainians do appear to be making, uh, some progress around, uh, Lyman. Um, and, um, uh, I think you're gonna see continued, and I don't, you know, the pace of the Ukrainian offensive a few weeks ago was so startlingly fast that I don't know how to assess what pace this is happening at, but the Ukrainians are clearly making progress on the ground. Uh, So, you know, I think watch the lines, particularly in the South. What are the chances that this ends with the death of Vladimir Putin? I don't know how to assess that. I really don't. The answer is is 50%. (laughs) (laughs) The, The answer is... The, the the answer is uh you know 
this is a at this point a regime survival issue for Putin, and regime survival and personal survival are not unconnected. And he's you know he's clearly lost control of the situation on the ground in Russia. Uh, he's not you know he called for this partial mobilization and failed to. Uh, get it in an orderly way. There's hundreds of thousands of Russians now, Russian men leaving the country. Uh, And so, you know, one thing we do not know about the Putin regime, which is actually different from the Soviet regime, if you think about the last time a leader was ousted in the Soviet Union, it was Khrushchev. And that was the Politburo that essentially had organized his removal Um, There is, we don't know who in the Russian Federation has the ability to organize Putin's removal. And so there's a, you know, there's a coup question, I suppose. There's also a, 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 a revolutionary street violence question, I suppose, although it's, you know, not since 1917 and or 19, you know, 89, 90 has that really, like, produced an overthrow of a of a Russian regime. But I, I do think you're talking about a um like the mechanism by which Putin is removed is very unclear and we do not have, at least outside the intelligence community, we don't have the kind of visibility into the way the the way that regime works to know like who the group is that could actually do this and what they are thinking. Think about the worst mistake you've ever made in your life that really made you look like a jackass in front of your wife or something, you know, where you really undercut your own like authority, authority in the household. And just imagine the stress like that this guy is under. He just to- I mean, he he brought his country into a total ruin over nothing. And now he's got to justify it to all his cronies and everybody. Everybody has to know every last person has to know that he's totally screwed this up. I, the, the well, and, and, interesting to me. And, and feel good because think about the worst mistake, not just that you've ever made in your life, but that you will ever make in your life. It is not one hundredth of a thousandth of one percent of this. <laughs> and I mean, there, there, there just aren't that many screw ups in the last <laughs> few hundred years that measure up to this one. But just be happy you're not married to Putin. OK, honey. <laughs> All right, let's talk about let's talk about other other stuff. And by the way, I'm I'm very very happy to finally meet you. Um, I think your your lawfare blog is terrific. Lawfare is a um an online uh, legal blog that kind of always has posts about whatever the the legal issues of the day are. It doesn't come from only one side. Um, there's another guy's name. What's his name? Jack, Jack Goldsmith. Is that his name? My co-founder. Well, comes, one of my two co-founders. Yeah, he he comes uh, from further from the right than you do. Would you say that's a fair? I mean, I would say the founders of Lawfare were we all think of ourselves as sort of centrists, and we founded the site uh, early in the in the counterterrorism. You know, the the sort of in the 2010 era to deal with a set of counterterrorism issues from a non-political perspective. The goal was to be useful to mostly government lawyers, actually, who were thinking about hard issues like, you know, who can you and can't you 
kill in a drone strike, right? When, who can you detain at Guantanamo Bay and who can't you? How do you try a terrorist in federal court, right? These are the questions we founded the site to think about. And as the national security legal conversation got increasingly overtaken by Trump issues, um, because remember, the Russia investigation was a counterintelligence investigation, right, which is very much in the orbit of things that Lawfare thinks about. Uh, uh, we uh, came to cover a lot of the issues, not all of them, but a lot of the issues that people associate with the Trump scandals. Yeah, I, I actually I actually didn't agree with you on um, most of the stuff about Trump and, and uh, the Mueller report and all that stuff. And, and almost anything that anything that touched on Comey and maybe so, I'm not going to talk about it today. Maybe Sunday, if I ever meet you in person, I'd love the opportunity to go over that stuff with you. Anything that touched on Comey, I kind of didn't ag- agree with you on. But I but that doesn't you know, that's neither here nor there. I, I just but I always very much enjoyed reading reading you because i felt it was um very good faith um but what about the okay so what about the latest stuff um and then maybe maybe we can touch on a little bit of the old stuff this uh whole thing is trump gonna get indicted where are you on that uh i do think he is likely to get indicted um i don't know whether he will get indicted for january 6th related stuff uh although i think it's very possible I do think I, I'm not sure I see how the Mar-a-Lago story ends with anything other than a federal criminal indictment of Donald Trump. So let me ask you a question. Um, by the way, we had a guy on two weeks ago, uh, uh, Jed Sugarman, Jed Sugarman, who had written an article in Persuasion about the case for um, uh, for, for prosecuting Trump for January 6th stuff. And mm-hmm. uh, I pushed back on him and I, I wonder if you'd listen to the podcast on it. But I think that. Um, I think I think I had the better of him in that argument. I don't think he's going to get indicted for that. But uh, I do think you're probably right about the all this latest up latest up with the documents. I have another question though. We heard for years that the Mueller report laid out a roadmap to indict Trump for obstruction of justice. And there was tremendous anger at the fact that Barr uh rejected this and um, just tremendous anger that Trump was somehow guilty of obstruction of justice and he was uh, not being pursued. And then Biden became president. And lo and behold, Merrick Garland seems to agree that Trump is not guilty of obstruction of justice. He didn't do anything about indicting him. And the same legal experts who were furious barely have laid a finger on Garland for, the, for not indicting Trump for this very serious crime of obstruction of justice. And I'll let you answer, but to me, this exposes a kind of serious bias in the legal expert community, the Larry tribes and all of them. I, I'm not including you in that, which really disturbs me. You know, it's like, where were you? Where are you now that they actually could indict him? How come nobody is calling uh, Garland all the names that they were calling Barr? Did you even mean it or was it just partisan politics all along? So what's going on with that? Okay, so I, first of all, would not ever suggest that partisan politics plays no role in the legal expert community. Um, uh, Like all communities that comment on things, people's uh, biases and priors are a 
a piece of the conversation. And um, so I, I, I'm not, I don't want to defend the community uh, on a, you know, mass basis. I will say, I think this is a bad example of your point. Okay. Um, And the reason is that, uh, so there is a very longstanding Justice Department tradition that when an investigation is closed, you don't reopen it, except in the situation, a truly extraordinary circumstance, generally involving new evidence. So I think the best way to understand Merrick Garland's posture is not that he decided he agreed with Bill Barr. I don't think we have any evidence of that. What we have evidence of is that Bill Barr closed an investigation and Garland respected the closure of that investigation. Those are very different questions, whether you would close it yourself, whether you agree with the decision to close it, and whether you would reopen it merely because you disagree. I think a lot of people and, you know, I am I have mixed feelings about that decision. Um, but, uh, which we can go into if you want. Um, but I do think it's, it's a perfectly consistent position for somebody who was very critical of Barr for, for closing that case in 48 hours, um, without really taking Mueller's evidence all that seriously to then say, but, uh, whether you would reopen it merely because the administration has changed, that's a different question. Yeah. And I, I think I think you can hold those two ideas in your mind at the same time. Well, let me give you a few things that come to my mind as you're saying that, and you tell me if any of them matter. First of all, uh, Trump was a sitting president, so it's it's a different chapter altogether. It's, it's not but a... Be, uh... be careful. That was Mueller's point. Mueller's right. point was hey, he's the sitting president, we can't indict him. So here's the evidence. Uh, Somebody else make the call later, right? Right. Barr says, no, it's your job to make the call. You didn't make it, so I'm making it for you. We're declining this. We're closing it. That's a closure of the matter. Garland's posture is, it seems to be, as best as I can tell, it's closed. It's a closure just merely of a, respecting the fact that it's closed. It's a closure of a matter, but something drastic has changed since that closure. And, and you know, there's uh, opinions about whether or not Trump could even be indicted, although Barr, I think, uh, said that wasn't the reason he didn't. Barr actually thought on the merits there was no case. But here's but here's but here's my point. And my initial point was not so much about Garland, but was about the the legal, uh, you know, intelligentsia. The commentariat. Yeah, the commentariat, which is that. They accused Barr of making a corrupt finding. There's no, they, they didn't, very, very few people credited Barr with a good faith determination. They felt he was doing Trump's dirty work. And you don't respect that precedent if you believe it was reached corruptly. And you don't, you don't let Garland, there's no rule he has to not reopen investigation. And there's quite a compelling reason that you would absolutely reopen a closed investigation if you believe that investigation was closed corruptly. As a matter of fact, you don't want to set the precedent of allowing a corrupt closure to stand. So I don't see why that would be a reason to let Garland off the phone. So you have just stated my view. Of oh, OK. <laughs> which is I, I think Barr's decision 
was, uh, uh, I'm not sure I would use the word corrupt, but I would use, I I would say, uh, enormously suspect um, and peculiar. um, And I would have hoped that Merrick Garland, who, by the way, is a a friend and somebody who I uh, think the world of, I would have hoped that there would have been an independent evaluation of that. And I think if he made, if he made the decision to not look again at this, um, I disagree with that. And I, I think that it warranted a second look. I fear he disagrees with me about that. Um, and to the extent that he does, uh, and just let Barr's decision stand, I have a bit of a problem with that. What's what's your what's the first thing that comes to your mind as the um, the best example of why Trump should have been um, charged with obstruction of justice? What of, of those ten things or whatever it was? Which one is the worst to you? So the worst to me, there's there's two that are really bad. Um, one is the instruction to Don McGahn to uh, uh, falsify a document. Um, and the second is the dangling of pardons to people who had business before the Mueller investigation, particularly uh, Paul Manafort and uh, um, and uh, uh, Roger Stone, and who he eventually delivered the pardon to, and to uh, Michael Cohen. So I, I think those are the really where the rubber hits the road. I would love to say that the firing of Jim Comey was an act of obstruction. I don't think it was. Oh, good for you. Yeah, I don't think it was either. I don't, I don't think any of these uh, things would would be provable enough beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a reasonable doubt that it would warrant uh, the upheaval to the country of attempting it and the risk of Trump being able to pound himself on the chest and saying, you see, you see, they couldn't so- get me. So I have no problem with that judgment, but I do want the Justice Department post Bill Barr to make it independently of him. And so my my problem is not that Trump was not ultimately indicted for obstruction of justice. Um, my problem exists if and only if somebody at Merrick Garland's instruction did not independently examine that record all right and so and so what do we do about the legal commentary like like you know how um the conservatives uh are are criticized when they don't drum out the the crazies out of their ranks the anti-semites or even just the crazy people or the tucker carlson's um you know you have somebody like larry tribe going on tv and saying that trump is guilty of attempted murder and i can name any number of uh crazy things that are said and, uh, you know, and there's still experts in good standing. Like, you know, what do you think so, of all that? It's, it, it upsets me enormously. So I don't want to sound like one of the conservatives who uh, says I don't read the tweets. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually don't watch cable television. And That's so um, my my sense of that community is heavily conditioned by having been on contract for a couple of years to MSNBC and being a legal commentator and sometimes being on television with people who said irresponsible things. Um, I look, one of the things about 
being on television as opposed to being in writing is that people don't tend to call you on it four months later when you're shown to have made a jackass of yourself. And I don't know what you do about that as a general matter. A lot of stupid things get said on television from the left, from the right, from the center. One of the reasons I started doing television when Jim was fired was that there just weren't like people were saying all kinds of shit and nobody knew what they were talking about. And, you know, I, I thought it was important to be somebody who said things that I knew to be true and did analysis that I could say, Hey, this is my analysis. And also could say, I have no freaking idea what the answer to that question is, you know, and, and, um, and I do think people are not responsible about doing that. And by the way, cable television does not reward it because it's not a, it's not an environment where if you say, I, I have no idea what the answer to that question and neither does anybody else. And anybody who gets on here right now and speculates that is talking out of their ass. That is not a provocative, the, it's not the kind of thing that makes people want to watch CNN rather than MSNBC or MSNBC rather than CNN. And so I, I think it's a real problem. I don't think it's a problem and in any way limited to uh, left of center legal commentators. Let me ask you one more question. By the way, I, I don't want my um, I don't want to, you know, the listeners and even my co-hosts don't want to hear about the the Trump uh, obstruction stuff and uh, the documents and all that stuff and the dangling of pardons, which I could talk. I would love to talk about for hours. But um, I do have a, like just for fun. Let's just think for, of, a, of a counterfactual situation where um, Hillary won. Hillary won the, the 2016 campaign. And she won because of an October surprise, which was the Mother Jones article, which spilled the beans basically on the Russia investigation and uh, that Trump was considered uh, likely to be compromised uh, and, uh, um, you know, uh, compromised by the Russians and maybe even susceptible to blackmail by the Russians. Hillary wins. And then everything we now know about that entire side of the equation, the Steele dossier, the uh, the fact that the FBI knew that Carter Page was uh, had been a co-op, had been cooperating, that the FISA documents had been um, and everything that Horowitz came out with about the FISA documents being improper, all of it that uh, that um, whoever I mean we don't even know what's true anymore, but that the Steele dossier purported to speak to high level Kremlin operatives. So they were speaking to Russians, getting inside information from Russians, money changed hands. What would we be saying now about the Hillary victory vis-a-vis Russia? Okay, so I want to challenge the premise of the question. It's a thought, not, it's a thought experiment. How can no, you know? no, no, no. <laughs> not yeah. because I think the question is unreasonable. Okay. But because everybody expected Hillary to win. And so if Hillary had won nobody would have said, well, she only won because of that Mother Jones article. Hillary winning was the default position. That's a very um, good answer, but you still know what I'm asking. <laughs> yeah. I, so, yeah. Right. So I want to, but I do want to, I do want to say as a preliminary matter that I don't think if Hillary had won, 
we would have attributed any of it. Look, well, if, the people who but, listen, but, people but watch you're Fox, asking about the, Fox News would have reported it. Fox News would have reported it the way I just presented it to you. You know, the, okay. So let, 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 me, let me answer the question. Yeah. And I'm, I say this as somebody who's, I, I, unlike a lot of people who bullshit about this, I am actually pretty sophisticated about the way the FBI works. Okay. The FBI takes information from people like Christopher Steele all the time. And information goes into the FBI and some of it is shit. And that is... That is the simple truth. And their job is to filter out the shit. And sometimes they don't do that as effectively as we would like them to. Uh, In this case, they did it ultimately quite effectively in the sense that nobody got prosecuted. Nobody got, you know, no one was held to account by Christopher Steele's information, except in the limited sense that there was material submitted that was false to the FISC, the FISA court, and there was a surveillance order obtained on Carter Page. Um, and so I guess what I would say is the right answer to your question would be, hey, um, the FBI got some information, investigated it, and it turned out not to be true. And that's the right answer if Trump won, and that's the right answer if Hillary won. Uh, and yeah, but but Trump, I think you even wrote about this one time, but Trump was considered um, horrible, for lack of a better word, lack of a smarter word, uh, for the fact that he was open to getting information from the Russians about Hillary's emails or blah, 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 whatever. He was he wanted to get whatever he could get uh, from anybody Russian, regardless of how he got it. Um, but Hillary, of course, hired. I don't, know, I don't know to extent what she knew, what she didn't know. Hillary's campaign hired. Yeah, there's uh, no evidence of her involvement in this whatsoever, by the way. Yeah, well, right. So uh, Hillary's campaign hired somebody who actually was speaking to high placed Russians trying to get dirt from Russia. It's kind of the exact same thing. I, I mean, I think it's the same thing. No, uh, it's not. Why not? Okay. So, first of all, the. Hiring opposition researchers and not knowing where they're getting their shit is what campaigns do. Um, And one of the reasons you hire opposition research firms is so that there's a bit of distance between you and whatever stuff has to be done. I don't like it. I don't think they (laughs) should be doing it. No, no, no. But if, if the is, reason if, you don't know is because if, you know if you know you're going to get in trouble for knowing, that's that's just no, no, no. If you disqualified, if you disqualified or or you know every candidate whose company who whose campaign hired a law firm, whose law firm hired a private investigation firm, whose private investigation hire, firm hired a subcontractor who did something you didn't like, you would be disqualifying a huge number of people. The Trump stuff was different. Trump was out there himself saying, Russia, if you're listening, can you please, you know, hack her email? No, that's not true. Um, her email, her, can, email, her server was way offline by then. This is long after. Can, the, you, can you please find the 40,000 emails yeah, which that are, are floating missing. around? His, yeah. Yeah. his, 
son, son-in-law, uh, and campaign manager met with somebody who represented herself as a Russian agent peddling dirt on Hillary Clinton. There's an immediacy and directness to it that is just completely unlike anything that went on on the other side. I'm surprised that you say that. I mean, I, I take it because it comes from you. But to me, I feel like when somebody gets hired that has extensive ties to Russia, it's certainly known that they're going to be using those extensive ties to Russia in the furtherance of what you hired them to do. There was a dossier. It talked about getting information from high-level Kremlin officials. Then it winds up in the press. Uh, like I say, I don't know what Hillary knows or doesn't know, but uh, you know, I think that's been her her modus operandi for years with the Sid Blumenthal types or whatever it is. It don't tell Look, me to I'm, do what you got to do. It's pretty. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not going to tell you that this is good. That it's. Uh, that it's okay, that I like it, that I think it's fine. That's not my point at all. I'm just saying it's it's different from what Trump did, which was, by the way, continued into his presidency. He stood on a stage with Vladimir Putin at, in Helsinki and sided with Vladimir Putin over the U.S. intelligence But, but there's other differences. That, well, you're right about that, for sure. You, we agree 100% on that. That's just like a different order of magnitude that's not, that's than you're talking about with, with Hillary Clinton. No, that's not corruption. That's Trump's... I mean, I, I 100% agree with you about the last example. I don't think that belongs in this universe. But the other differences in the opposite direction are that uh, whichever Trump, Donald Trump Jr., gets a cold call from somebody he doesn't even know and saying, listen, I have a bunch of dirt on Hillary. I'd like to meet with you. He says, oh, if it's what you say, I love it. And they meet and no, it's nothing. That's not as- what the email said. What the email said is the crown prosecutor of Russia has decided to, that we side with Hillary Clinton and want, or we side with Donald Trump and want to give you this dirt to support the campaign. Right. I, I didn't mean to. I wasn't trying to misstate it. Uh, um, my my I was emphasizing the fact that this came to him out of nowhere and he agreed to the meeting as opposed to him hiring somebody who then went to Russia looking for this information. I would say the hiring is a proactive act. Hiring people with ties to Russia. Go see what you can dig up is morally different than getting a call saying, hey, somebody from inside Russia has some dirt on Hillary. Oh yeah, I'll, I'll listen to it. You know, so you can you, you can play the distinction game in both directions. They're not exactly the same, but they are the same in one sense that either side was perfectly happy to get dirt on the other side, regardless of its source, if it was true. They wanted to win, and and if if they could get their hands on true information, no matter how they it got to them, they were prepared to use it. And I think nine out of 10 political campaigns are, are have that same ethic, unfortunately, but that's the real life. So, so I, I agree with part of that and I disagree with part of it. The part of it I agree with is um, politics is hardball and um, people do what they think will work. Right. Um, and 
The part of it I disagree with is if you're looking at it from the vantage point of the U.S. Intelligence Committee community. So if you're looking at it from the vantage point of the U.S. Intelligence Community and you say, oh, one side hired a um, private investigator firm and to see what dirt they could dig. And, you know, that included from the uh, talking to a guy named Igor Danchenko, who who purported to have Kremlin-y contacts. Uh, the other side has all kinds of direct contacts and meetings and business deals with Russia and seems obsessed with Vladimir Putin and getting his approval. One of those situations is a counterintelligence concern. The other is kind of normal business. And I think that explains the difference between the way the FBI thought about one versus another. I think there was a lot of um, co- uh, confirmation bias that went into it. If, if you were to change the country and make it Israel, I bet you I could come up with 50 facts of Trump's, you know, dealings with Israelis and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's, it's um, whatever. I, 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 uh, I don't know. I think, I think once historians get a little bit more distance from all this, maybe we'll get more perspective on it all. I'm certainly not here to defend Trump. That's not my, my purpose. I'm, my thing is always just how the holier than thou attitude on one side and I just know that if the shoe were on your other foot, they'd be seen. Like, for instance, when Bill Clinton met with, uh, what was her name, uh, the, the uh, attorney general on the tarmac? Um, Loretta Lynch. Loretta Lynch. You know, whatever. I was right there criticizing him. Yeah. Whatever that was, if that had been <laughs> Trump, you know, we would it would be it would, it would be huge. Right. But it, you know what? It yeah. should have been huge. Yeah. It was a problem. It was very inappropriate of her. It was very inappropriate of him, and it had big consequences, and she's never gotten enough criticism for it. Yeah. But nor has he, you know. It... No, no. I mean, I, look, she was the office holder at that point. Yeah. And I she was responsible. Her. She should not have let him on her plane. It's hard. You know, you know I, I, as somebody who. Sorry, I, she's the attorney general of the United States. Not a close call. He's the husband of a subject of an active investigation. He doesn't come near your plane. I know. Of course, you're hundred thousand percent right. But there's a human. I I'm sure she kicked herself the next day. But there's a human dynamic. He's Bill Clinton. He's extremely charismatic. He's the former president. It's very difficult to be rude to somebody like that. And she, you know, she. I I could just see how it happened. You know, I I don't think she meant it to happen the way it happened but he meant exactly what it it (laughs) to happen so that's why i really blame her he he took advantage of her is what it is yeah she should have had more backbone if it happens to her again she'll know better if we have a pandemic again we'll know better right but uh once bitten twice shy you know it just came out of nowhere for her i I always felt bad for her about that anyway uh anything else hot on your your uh radar about um Today's issues, Dan. You have any questions? You went to law school, Dan. That's true. Talking, Dan, Dan went to law school, but he has almost no interest in in legal matters. No, that's not There's true. Nothing I, like law school to cure you of. <laughs> oh, no, I you have, didn't go to law school, right? Uh, I didn't. Yeah. No, I have interest when we're talking about gun control. We're talking about abortion laws, immigration, certain topics. I have great interest in. 
from the legal stand, uh, side, but but not everything. Well, what about what? Ask him a question about Dobbs. Do, which one was Dobbs was again? The, <laughs> the abortion. <laughs> That's decision. the abortion decision. Okay, well, then we can go. <laughs> do you feel that that was rightly decided from a constitutional standpoint? I do not. I think the beginning and end of that is honestly the the reliance interest that tens of millions of Americans have on the Supreme Court's statement of what their rights are. I don't think Roe v. Wade was rightly decided as an original matter, um, but 50 years of announcing what people's constitutional rights are has to matter for something. And it's a, I, I think the Supreme Court woefully underestimated uh, the consequences of uh, of a sort of now you have it now you don't approach to fundamental rights. Well, this is one thing that does States. interest me is what the standard is for overturning a previous decision, and I don't think there is one. No, it's early. So, stare decisis is the most under theorized idea in American law. It basically amounts to. Don't overturn a precedent except when it's really important to do so, and with no definition of what it's really important to do so means. And so if you have six uh, social conservative justices, that means something very different than if you have, you know, six socially liberal justices. And it's a, uh, I, I mean, I think the only thing you can say in defense of Dobbs at least that I can say in defense of Dobbs, is that uh, it has the virtue of making a large number of politicians accountable for the first time for the positions that they've taken very blithely and without a sense of consequence. Let me tell you why I think you're 100% wrong. You ready? I think for I think you're wrong because uh, one of one of the uh, you know checklists of uh, things that you go through for star decisis is reliance. So, for instance, I'm, I'm speaking to the audience now. So, for instance, if uh, you relied on this and you bought property and you built a business and you this or you and you 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 planned your life and you're Got pregnant. Yeah, yeah. Well, so so that's not um, so that's reliance. There's there is no reliance on. The abortion decision, may, maybe except for the very sh- the subgroup of people who happen to be pregnant right in that period of time when it happens, but there's no long-term reliance. Pe- people's lives do not have to unravel. It's just a different law now. There's no, there's nobody's nobody has has built their lives in reliance on Roe versus Wade. Number one, number two, and I'm pro-choice, but if I put myself in the mindset of someone who believes that abortion is a horrible moral event, even if they don't want to call it murder, whatever, whatever they think it is just, it's just an unlevel of slavery, let's say um, that would have to override what you're talking about. I think even for you, it would override it. If you believed that, I think, I think your, your opinion is based on the fact that you just don't think the way that people who oppose uh, abortion do think. So you can say what you're saying. But a big number of people don't see it that way. So they cannot possibly accept the reliance argument, especially adding in the reasons I'm saying there is no actual reliance. I don't it's just think, been there a well, long time. I don't think that that's true. I think that 
as, as speaking as somebody who can get pregnant, I think that we, and I think that I speak for millions and millions of women. I think that we do rely upon the fact that we know that if we get pregnant by accident, which could happen at any moment that you can get an abortion. Right. But that's not reliance in the sense of, of the term that we're using the term reliance, meaning that things you've done previously, which now you'd have to undo all these things that you've done in order to to get yourself into compliance with this new law. And that would be as a practical matter for society, just impossibly burdensome. You just can't unwind all these things. Yeah, but I think I I think you're you're um, you're focusing on and granted, we are talking about law here. But I, you're talking about uh, uh, you're talking in a very hyper technical way about what a reliance interest is and isn't, and I'm saying people have designed their lives around a certain expectation. Give me an example of, of me. sexual autonomy and medical autonomy, and the idea that, well, I mean, you know, the the sexual revolution is a much less viable proposition if you can, from a female perspective, if you can get pregnant and be forced to carry a child to term. Uh, And we have two whole generations of women who have grown up with a certain sense of sexual autonomy. And, you know, that is much deeper than than a technical reliance interest. And so, look, I'm not saying you cannot make a case that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. I actually think Roe v. Wade was a bad decision. Um, I do think when the Supreme Court gives with one hand fundamental rights and takes away with another hand those same fundamental rights, because for no reason other than that the composition of the court has changed, it courts exactly what has happened, which is the perception that the court is entirely political and nothing more than political. And that's exactly what's happened. Let me ask you this way. Let's say Roe versus Wade had uh, come out um, the opposite way and Roe versus Wade had actually allowed abortion. I mean, had had forbidden, allowed states to prohibit abortion. And that was the Mm -hmm. 50-year regime we lived in. Yeah. And then the court changed and the Dobbs case for basically for the same reasoning, went the other way and now allowed abortion. Would well, anybody can, be making can, the reliance case? They'd, they'd say this was this was a badly decided decision in 73. It should have been a right all along. And now we're God bless the court for finally allowing uh, this right to. Well, I, I think so I, we, we I, can I, take I cannot the brown. tell you what other I cannot tell you what others would say. I can tell you what I said in the case that most resembles the hypothetical. Sorry, my dogs are barking. That's okay. I can tell you what I said in the cases that most resembled that, which was the gay marriage case uh, or Bergerfell. And I, look, I support gay marriage. I have always supported gay marriage. And I didn't think it should be judicially uh, imposed. Um, And I took a lot of criticism for that. Um, But I don't think these decisions should, as a general matter, be made by courts. And I thought the experience of Roe should teach us that judicializing these things is generally a bad idea. And I was willing to go slower than I would like on same-sex marriage in order to 
be consistent about that. Um, I lost that debate. Um, and, but I, you know, and actually gay marriage has not proven to be con- as controversial, though judicially imposed in the way that Roe was. So maybe I was wrong about that. But I can tell you that my view on this is relatively consistent. I don't think that contested social issues should generally be decided by courts. Two things. And, and I do think, by the way, that once the court decides something like that, it's got to be very careful about undeciding it. Yeah. So two things. If if Roe had uh, um, made abortion or allowed abortion to be illegal, or, or if Roe had made abortion illegal, let's say Roe, uh, the case against Roe made by the left would be precisely this, the same rationale as Dobbs, that it should be a state issue. You you know, that that rationale is, is really just used by whoever it's convenient for at the time. But um, I'm happy you brought up the gay marriage because that would be a very good example of reliance. So if they were to if somebody wanted to overturn the uh, the gay marriage decision, then the argument, listen, generations of people have relied on this decision people are married they have lives together they have children they have property they have uh, you know everything that comes with marriage that's the kind of reliance i think which would be very compelling you can't just unmarry all these people you can't disintegrate all these families you can't undo all the wills the contracts everything that goes on the property i mean you just can't undo that once it happens that's that's the difference between reliance that i think needs to be respected and the reliance that what would be your argument from purely from what you had just said when it's appropriate to uh, overturn a uh, previous decision what would be your argument in favor of brown versus board of education originally the supreme court said separate but equal is okay and then the supreme court said no separate is inherently unequal so based on what you just said how can you justify brown versus board of ed so first of all um uh, in a very material sense, Plessy, the regime under Plessy, was denying to millions of people fundamental rights. And so if you believe that the notion of equal protection in the 14th Amendment has any meaning at all, there is an ongoing 50-year constitutional deprivation. There's no analog to that here, by the way, unless you believe in fetal personhood, um, which granted, I take it, a a lot of people do, but under the Constitution, the 14th Amendment is actually pretty clear that people who are born or naturalized are citizens of the United States. So the Constitution actually has something to say about that question. But, you know, I do think the reason that Brown is different here is that there is an ongoing facial deprivation of constitutional rights to millions of black school children all over the country because of the application of Plessy in 1954. And so to correct that, you have to get rid of Plessy. Um, And there's just no analog to that here. Now, I do concede that this puts pro-life people in an impossible situation. The Supreme Court takes away their franchise in 1973 on this issue. And then people like me come along and say, well, 
you know, Supreme Court was really wrong to do that, but it's irremediable at this point. Um, and that's where, look, I, I just disagree with, I, I, I mean, I understand that there's a problem with my point of view on that. I will say in response that, um, look, I think that there are two potential answers to that question, neither of them perfect. One is what happened, which is, okay, let's get rid of the goddamn thing. And, but if you take that view, you have to be willing to take the political blowback for that. And I, I, I actually think that a lot of rep- pro-life Republicans are not willing to take the political blowback. And like, my point is, okay, if you, if that's what you want, you got to be willing to deal with the political repercussions of actually getting what you want. The second possibility, which is what I think the right answer would have been, uh, is the constitutional amendment process. And the fact that that couldn't have been done is a reflection of the fact that the majority of Americans don't favor getting rid of abortion. Well, I, I think we said on, the, on another show, I, I think that the court, but I don't know if they ever, this argument was ever made to them. I think the court could have found that in the first two and a half months or whatever it is before the markers of brain activity and heartbeat and feeling of pain, that prior to that marker, um, that this is, this is a fundamentally a religious point of view. And uh, banning abortion is an establishment of religion. I, I would be convinced by that, uh, but I don't think that argument was ever made in that way. The arguments are more maximalist than that. But having said that, I've, I've, I'm optimistic it's going to work out okay for the reason that you said. They talked a good game. The pro-life Republicans talked a good game. But now that they actually uh, have what they wanted, you should always be careful what you wish for. I think the democratic process is going to work out much better than people feared. There's going to be a lot of bad things that happen to and, and heartbreaking stories for some period of time. And, but I think it will settle into a better thing all around. And the, and the issue hopefully will be put to bed finally, because this issue was never going to go away. This was going to royal our politics forever, forever. As long as people feel that this is a moral abomination and science actually is not on the side of the pro-choice movement. Every new scientific disclosure makes it harder and harder to see any bright line between a fetus and a, and a baby, especially as the, the weeks go by. So I think, I don't know, maybe I'm just being, uh, um, well, w- will there be States that continue to ban? Like, uh- I think there will be some, but I think that, uh, between travel and delivery of drugs, in the mail and uh, things like that. I, I feel like the hardship five years from now will be very minor to, to, uh, to people. That's what I think. We'll see. You, you, you have any comment on that or you just want to leave it there? <laughs> well, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I would frame it differently, but I, I, you know, I think the the real question here is, what do you think the horizon is? What What's the time horizon? I, I, I do think eventually democratic choice will 
resolve this in one way or another and that that will be relatively acceptable. I do think a lot of pain's going to happen in in those years and is. I yeah, it's a disaster already. Doctors and OBGYNs are beside themselves all over the country to say nothing of all of the women who, I mean, people think of abortion. It's like, oh, I got pregnant when I didn't want to. So I'm going to go you know, you have know, an abortion. Think, you know, That's not actually accurate. A lot of times you need to have a, an abortion because you're there's something wrong with you that doctors are actually yeah. now not allowed to perform. I think your dogs are in agreement from, from, to hear to hear them um, to hear them barking along with with. All right, so but I, you know your dogs better than me. I don't know if that's a bark of agreement or I, a bark. I of- think they are uh, excited by the uh, by the conversation. <laughs> I, I think I think we got to go. It's such a fascinating issue, right? It's just like you. Uh, there's just part of me that says that the issue of when life begins since it's unknowable and certainly the opinion of, of legal scholars is not that important to that, that uh, that's what democracy is for. Like who's going to choose that, but the people, you know, but uh, I, I, but I said, I have have a 10 year old daughter and the story about this 10 year old girl who was pregnant. I mean, this, of course I, I, I I can't even imagine. I, Oh, I mean, Listen, I have means. I I didn't have to worry about it. I could just go somewhere and get it taken care of. But if I didn't have money, I mean, it's just it's well, that's it's horrible to think. That's that's at risk. Also, they're starting to say that that might not actually be possible. Well, I'm telling you, I don't. I mean, Mr. Wittes, I don't know. Wittes, right. I don't know uh, what you think about that seems to be more like a scaremongering thing. I don't think they could ever stop people from traveling. I do not believe they could constitutionally stop people from traveling. I do believe they could try and make people's uh, lives very difficult in the period it would take to sort out. And look, I I think we're going to have a period of a lot of chaos and, um, and, you know, whether that's a good thing or a bad thing depends, I suppose, on your view of the original matter. Um, I uh, I say this as somebody who was never a fan of Roe as a constitutional matter of constitutional law. I do think the disruption is uh, uh, to people's lives is excessive relative to the democratic benefit at this point. You know, you can, it's an interesting thing because I, I mean, most lawyers, especially uh, s- the smarter set of lawyers, basically the idea that Roe was wrongly decided. Everybody knew that. Everybody's known that since, uh, you know, I went to law school in the 80s. Everybody knew that Roe was was uh, badly decided. And to use your construction, but because of the composition of the court, it it it's it stayed on. And that's at I mean, in 1980, only seven years after it was decided, that wouldn't be long enough that somehow as long as they dig in and hold up this wrongly decided decision long enough. At some point, magically, it transforms into a fundamental right decision that's outrageous to overturn. That's a tough thing to swallow. It just is. You know, but I, it's not alone in that regard. It's um, alone in, the, in that regard in the sense that there's an innocent victim maybe being in the minds of some people. That, that yeah, makes it but, unique. But, but think about it. Like, you know, the right to have children, the right to, to you know, parental rights are as completely made up as abortion rights. 
And yet we take them pretty seriously. No, because parental rights are actually a case where you can go back to the traditional rights that people have always had. It's kind of the, the logic that Roe tried to use and say parents, families have always had these rights. Always, always, always. You know, um, the dormant commerce clause is entirely made up. Yes. Um, it's really old. And so we all accept it. What is a lot of, uh, the idea that states can't regulate interstate commerce because the the federal government can? Yeah, this really is really old, this is, this really is old sorry. idea. It's very venerable. It's very important to lots of uh, uh, restrictions on state power. It's complete bullshit. I am um, sure you could come up with with an example. You know, I don't expect you to do off the top of your head that I say, oh, yeah, that is kind of the same thing. But I don't think any of them could pack the wallop. Of, well, of, that's that's where you got me beat. The concern. I mean, people don't feel that strongly about the dormant commerce. Speak for yourself. <laughs> and the consequences, to be fair to the other side, this is this is, after all, unknowable. And the consequences of getting this wrong from a metaphysical point of view, are just quite different than anything that you could compare it to. It's not so like... Let me, let me, before we well, wrap, let me yeah. ask you guys a question. Sure. Um, this is a comedy podcast? Not today, it wasn't. <laughs> well, you bring up a good point. Uh, this is a comedy seller podcast, affiliated podcast. It so happens that the owner of the comedy seller, Mr. Noam Dorman, who you've been just talking to for an hour, uh, has very little interest in comedy, but a, <laughs> but a great deal of interest in political matters and law. I see, because because like we just had a great conversation, but it it wasn't funny. Our next episode. Well, well you might have missed my comment when <laughs> I asked you. We were talking about the Swiss company, and I said, "Are they affiliated with? Are they a subsidiary of Godiva chocolate?" But <laughs> yeah, but, I I noticed that one. Yeah, but, I tried know, to squeeze like, that in. It got kind of buried, and maybe it wasn't that funny anyway. Let me ask you a question, though, to end with. Uh, how would you rate Noam Dorman's <laughs> intellect? And is he... That would be funny. <laughs> is he suited to... Does he have anything... Does some of the great uh, minds uh, and public intellectuals have anything on Noam Dorman? <laughs> Don't get this one wrong. <laughs> Do you uh, think Noam so, should be... Has a place in public intellectual? No, shut up, Dan. Uh, so I... I can save myself from the uh, from the from the possibility of getting this question wrong by saying I have no fucking idea what you're talking about. (laughs) And therefore, uh, I'm just going to like pass on this, not because I'm dodging the question, but because I don't know. Well, let me simplify it for you. Do you feel Noam Dorman is a formidable intellect? He just wants to know if you thought Uh, I was a smart guy to talk to. That's all he's asking you. Oh, I didn't know. uh, Sorry, I didn't know your name. Oh, that's okay. Uh, (laughs) uh, No, like, you know, I think you should, I think you should, you know, have a contrarian column uh, in uh, one of the finest newspapers in the country. And here's uh, also what I, what I, what I think um, you should not just get obsessed with the steel dossier for the rest of your life. It's not that interesting. It's not that important. Um, it's, uh, uh, but yeah, you've got, um, you, 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 you definitely uh, should be uh, a column. You should have a column that pisses off 
uh, uh, all right thinking people all the time. Well, thank you. Are you ever going to come to the comedy cellar? Because uh, I do have so much, so much, like even more detailed stuff. I'd love to talk to you about. Like next been, time I'm, I'm in New York, I've been wanting to meet you for years. Well, why? Why didn't you send me an email? I, I did. I send you so many emails. You <laughs> finally got back to me. Really? Yeah. Well, you get lots of contacts, I'm sure. I mean, I generally ignore my email. So right, exactly I know. I can attest to that. Of me, disingenuous <laughs> of me. Where do you live? In? You live in Boston? Uh, I teach in Boston sometimes. So where do you live, though? I live in D.C. Oh, in D.C. Okay. Well, if you, you come know, to the Comedy Cellar, uh, half off <laughs> on all <laughs> items, excluding the steak. <laughs> you know, you, all right. You have whatever you want at the comedy cell. Do you like comedy? I do. Uh, well, you, you really, you must, certainly you do come to New York from time to time, right? I do. And next time I will come and I will send you an email. Oh, that'd be great. And, I, and I'll do my reading in advance. Because, you know, Noam asked Alan Dershowitz the same question. And boy, did he, was he uncommittal. You know, I asked Dershowitz if he'd come at his 120th birthday. Yeah, and even then he said, well, we'll see. <laughs> well, he was a little bit, of, I mean, he's upset because no one will have him over in Martha's Vineyard. And you know, he is upset about that. that. <laughs> he's quite upset about that. Do you know him at all? We've met. You've met. I don't know him personally. Whatever you want to say about the guy, just I feel the same way about um, Fauci and Mick Jagger. Some of these guys in their 80s, who really have not seemed to lose a beat, who are quick, remember the names, the new information, whatever it is. I just hope I can be like that. I think we get too hung up on like what he believes or doesn't believe. Just, I just really hope in my 80s, I can be as in the game as, as he is. You know, it's, it's, it's amazing. Can you think, imagine that Mick Jagger is the same age as Joe Biden? It's re- That's like, interesting. It's amazing, right? His dancing is better. It's just, and I and I and I'm by the way, just, don't take it the wrong way. I think Joe Biden is an absolutely normal 78 year old. I I it I hate it when they call him senile and all this stuff and they're mean. I it, it makes me sick. But he's a regular, he's a normal 78 year old, like my grandparents were at 78. But some of these guys, it's like they're like they're in their 50s. Fauci, Fauci's like Fauci's like 83, right? Well, and and Biden was was uh logoreal at in at 53 too. I mean he He's got a, you know, he was a, he, he was never able to answer a question briefly in his mind. You know, he, he, he always kind of wandered. Well, he would go off on stuff, but he's, he's clearly, again, he's just clearly like an old, I, I doubt if I showed Joe Biden a new technology, new software program, he would pick it up quickly. But you but, think Mick Jagger would? Well, I don't know Mick Jagger would, but <laughs> I, think Fauci, I think Fauci would have no problem. It just seems like, and Dershowitz too, like he'll, he'll integrate a whole new fact pattern with the names, with the dates, with the things, with all that stuff. And he'll have it at the tip of his brain in a way that's just, you know, I don't think I can do that. It's just, it's just, I just find it amazing. Anyway, uh, uh, Mr. Wittes, thank you very, very much. Um, Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. I'm happy you could be so comfortable in that hammock the entire time. (laughs) And uh, yeah, well, we look forward to seeing you in New York. Indeed. So Look long. forward to it. Take care. Thank you. Okay. Thank I'll you, everybody. Podcast at comedycellar.com for comments, questions, and suggestions. Bye bye. 